0: Welcome to the show. This is the Hope Radio Podcast. Real people, real stories, real hope. I am your humble host, Jess Jen. Oh my
1: gosh, (laughs) round of applause for you.
0: You did so good. Winning right now. But who are you?
1: My name, my name is Sean Davis. I happen to be your co-host.
0: Oh, I am the real host.
1: Yeah, I'm your co-host in life.
0: So now you are the I am professional your beautiful listener with a voice.
1: Oh, maybe. Does yeah. that mean you're going to ask all the questions? Yes. You're going to ask all the questions in this interview? Do you want me to? Yeah.
0: Because you always say I ask so many questions.
1: Yes, you do. You, you could be a lead investigator for some police agency. Yeah. For murder.
0: I ask the questions nobody thinks of. You do. I know.
1: But the question, see, the issue is sometimes they
0: stay in your head. I know. See, here's the thing is I ask the questions that nobody thinks to ask or wants to ask, but they're actually thinking they want to ask. Did that make sense?
1: I th- think so. So
0: basically the questions that you have in your head that you're afraid to ask, I have zero filter. So I just ask.
1: When do you ask those questions?
0: Not to our guests. <laughs> <laughs> we, we need to meet in person first before I get comfortable asking.
1: I know, because you get uncomfortable asking. Mm-hmm, right? I do. And then you ask me the questions after we've hung up with our guest.
0: Or I write them down on a piece of paper and say, ask this.
1: Yes. You know what we need? What do we need? We need an Etch-A-Sketch. You can do a little, because you can doodle and Etch-A-Sketch your, your questions.
0: Oh my gosh. You would lose me forever if I had an Etch-A-Sketch.
1: Well, okay.
0: I would have so much fun. Would you? Yeah.
1: Well, you doodle on your page. You should, you know, like we should have some way that you like shine the question (laughs) on me.
0: I save my doodles though. And you can't do that on there because if you shake it, you lose it.
1: I know. That's what's cool about it. It's forever gone. You just shake shake it it and it's gone. That's like problems. Shake them and then then they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. it's like, what's that thing called that give you, uh, the eight ball thing that had the little floaty thing in it and you would shake it up and all of a sudden you It's called you get, the eight ball. Is that what it's called?
0: Yeah. You can ask it anything and it'll tell you the answer. Yeah. But you know what I really want? What? A light bright.
1: A what? A light bright. I remember those. Those are fun. You remember the rock and Bach? Yeah. Our kids played with the rock and Bach like nothing else. You that was my favorite it. childhood toy for my kids was the rock and Bach.
0: I think it was theirs too.
1: Yeah, I haven't. I don't know if they still make that or it's not. It's like
0: a construction zone thing. I know. Yeah,
1: I don't. Oh, know. I, you just sparked some joy in me thinking about my childhood. Rock'em, <laughs> rock sock'em. Uh, rock. I had, I had, I used to watch the Six Million Dollar Man, and I had a computer tank. That I used to play with, and I forget what it was called. Dang it. A but computer you
0: computer tank.
1: Yeah, you could program the moves. It would go forward so many steps and you'd make a turn left and turn right and like you'd punch all this stuff into the top of it and it would it would move. Oh. Around. It was it was awesome. Hmm. That I mean, you know what's funny? Is we were just talking with our kids that we are
0: there's the hope train.
1: We are one of, if not the last generation mm-hmm. that grew up as kids without technology. Like integrated into our daily lives.
0: I know that's crazy to think of.
1: Like, just imagine never again.
0: Well, I really, wish, I wish we can all go back.
1: I know. <laughs>
0: Honestly, it seemed like simpler
1: times. Well, after watching that show, the social dilemma, I wish we could go back too yes. on Netflix. Yes, that was a, that was a weird for me, a little scary.
0: It was weird and scary for you. I was just like, eh,
1: uh, eh, eh. Uh.
0: They're not talking to me.
1: Yeah, you just, you were just able to tune it out. You got a little passionate. You got a little fiery with me.
0: Yeah. Why? I don't know. I just, I just don't feel like I was their target person they were talking to.
1: Yeah. Anyway, if you want to watch something that's interesting and
0: slightly scary,
1: (laughs) watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix.
0: It's not scary.
1: It was weird. No. It was uncomfortable.
0: I feel like I wasted an hour and a half of my life.
1: It it was not (laughs) hope-feeling. I will just make that disclosure right now.
0: Yeah, and there was no talk about food, so that wasn't even cool.
1: Yeah, I know. All right. So anyway, let's get on to uh, joke time. Let's get on to funny, because this is a show about hope. Hope. It's about lighthearted. It's about funny. Yes. Is it really about lighthearted, though? Sometimes it's not lighthearted, huh? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> that's no. one of Jen's comments. Sometimes this show is heavy. Well, it's yeah. heavy with the pause it's it's sometimes the rain is out and it's thunderstorms and it's and it's water everywhere and it's torrential rain and then all of a sudden you get the beautiful rainbow at the end. So that that's true. what this show
0: is about. That's true.
1: All right. So you ready for joke time?
0: I'm ready. All
1: right. I'm going to go first this time and since you stole my introduction, I'm actually going to do a food joke. What? Yes.
0: I'm not laughing.
1: How do you make an artichoke?
0: <laughs> I don't know.
1: You don't know how to make an
0: artichoke? An artichoke? Yeah. Boil it?
1: No. Fry you it? strangle it.
0: <laughs> Why are we talking murder?
1: It's not murder. Artichoke murder choke. Isn't choke. Funny. The strang the, ch- the artichoke <laughs> choke. <laughs> <laughs> Did I make you laugh?
0: Yes, you did. That was yeah.
1: funny. <laughs> so that's how you make an artichoke. You artichoke. strangle it. You know what? What?
0: We need to put an artichoke on the Traeger. What? Yeah, I think it'd be really good.
1: Well, maybe. I don't know how to cook an artichoke on the Traeger, but I know how to strangle it, I guess. <laughs> All right, what's your joke?
0: Okay, are you ready? Yep. What is a pretzel's favorite dance?
1: Uh, I don't know.
0: The twist.
1: That's another one of those.
0: You should have thought about it. You would See, have got that one. I, I know. know you would have got that one. It's. I don't. I. Your brain uh, wasn't working.
1: Yeah. Okay. Maybe you, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was not working. Clearly, it, it was not working. Because I on, should have got. It that was one. napping. All right. Well, I want to uh, tell you about our next guest, okay. Brian Ahern. He is an expert on the art of persuasion, Mm. business persuasion. He's one of only 20 individuals in the world who currently holds the Caldini Method Certified Trainer designation. These specializations in the psychology of persuasion were earned directly from Robert B. Caldini, Ph.D., the most cited living social psychologist in the world on the science of ethical influence. And so he's about ethical persuasion. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to him because I think that as a, as a business person, as a guy that is a speaker and mm-hmm. author, he's really been able to pivot his practice and go online, go virtual. And I think he's one of those people that uh, recognizes that the world is changing and he's trying to be in front of that change and trying to ride that wave of change to the benefit of his business. And I think that other people listening that own businesses will uh, learn something from yeah, our conversation today. Absolutely. So I'm excited to talk with him. So Yeah. You ready? I'm ready. Let's call him up. I'll get him on the line right now. All right. I'm excited to say I've got Brian Ahern on the line. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you today?
2: I'm doing fantastic. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: As are we. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't wait to talk with you because I think with your background and your knowledge and what you do and your understanding of persuasion and how to influence people, I just felt like, man, there's gonna be some great nuggets of hope that come out of this conversation, especially for entrepreneurs and business owners right now and people that are out there trying to figure out how to navigate the current world of the pandemic and the disruptions that it's caused for a lot of businesses and, and, and people. So I'm sure you're probably getting your fair share of inquiries and uh, questions regarding how to pivot in this current age.
2: Yeah, and some of the things that I've learned uh, when I pivot, I am going to keep doing even if we go back to normal because they've worked so well.
1: Oh, I be, I believe that I, I think you know Jen and I have had this conversation before. I don't I don't think that there is going to be a back to normal. I think that the reality of it is is that everything has has changed. And I look at online platforms. I look at physicality, which I'm sure we'll get into. I look at gyms. I look at uh, how uh, training has gone so much more virtual. And I think many of these things that have you know, been the pivots out of the pandemic are going to be here to stay, that these are going to be things that we love and use and and don't want to go back to, quote unquote, theoretical normal for.
2: Yeah, I agree. I, I think of 9-11 and, you know, we used to go to the airport and get there maybe 30 minutes before, walk straight to the gate, get on the plane and, and you'd go. And then all of a sudden we were told to be there three hours in advance. And now we found a happy medium. We're usually, you know, 90 minutes works pretty well, but but we never went back to
1: the way it was no and and I agree with you that 's a great example and i, I don 't think that uh, uh, a lot about life is going to continue to be the same I, I talked to jen i 'm wondering how how long masks will stay a thing. you know I think that they 'll probably be a thing for some people you know, for a long time moving forward. But, I, you know, we got into this discussion about, you know, are people going to be two years from now, three years from now wearing as many masks as they do now? And I'm like, I I think people are going to get over that at some point. But I think the whole virtual training, uh, I think the whole in-person meetings and people having to fly across the country, I think that people will uh, not be doing that nearly as much in the quote-unquote new world that exists post-pandemic.
2: Yeah, I I agree because I think, too, that as they find, not only are they going to save cost, but if you structure your training differently, you can actually have a better training experience where people learn better. And that's what I'm finding.
1: Well, why don't you, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us a little bit more about yourself professionally. I know you have the CMCT uh, designation. I know that's a really, really rare designation in 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 the business world. And so I'd like people to understand a little bit more about who you are and what you do for the benefit of others.
2: Coming out of college, because at the end of the day, you do two things. You help people and you help the economy. By that, I mean, if somebody has something bad happen, whether it's a car accident or something happens to their business or their home, if they have the right insurance, a good agent, good company, they're very thankful because, you know, we step in and we we try to help them get back to whole. We also help the economy because, you know, who's going to loan you a bunch of money to start a business, buy a car or any of those things if you can't guarantee repayment tomorrow if something happens. So because of that guarantee the insurance industry makes, uh, there's a ripple effect throughout the economy where I think more businesses are started, buildings are built, cars are sold, etc. So I, I really enjoyed my time in the insurance industry. I left a few years ago to pursue my passion, which is teaching people about the psychology of persuasion and doing that on a full-time basis. But I got involved with it Um, almost 20 years ago when I bumped into the work of Dr. Robert Cialdini and started utilizing some of his concepts in the training that I was doing with an insurance company and just became so fascinated by it that a a dozen years ago, I started blogging on a weekly basis and I knew this is what I would do with the rest of my career. So I, I built my online presence, the website, LinkedIn, all that stuff. And then a couple of years ago, I felt it was the right time. So I stepped away from the insurance company. And now I teach people full time uh, how to ethically influence others. And I do it through speaking, training, coaching and consulting.
1: So let's talk about that just a little bit. You know, sometimes when people hear the the term persuasion, they can have a negative connotation to that thinking that that's, you know, the bad mm-hmm. form of selling, let's say, but you, you mentioned something yeah. that was very key, which was ethical. And so why don't you contrast mm-hmm. the differences between the two?
2: Okay, well, let me start with a quick story on just to really set the stage so listeners understand how how much I take this seriously when we come to talking about ethical persuasion. When I bumped into Robert Cavalini's material, it was that somebody I worked with gave me a videotape of him. And when I watched the videotape where he presented at Stanford, for me, the light bulb came on because I understood that the psychology he was talking about was the underpinning of all selling. And I was involved in sales training. The second thing that appealed to me was the fact that it was all research-based. I felt like I could confidently get behind that because of uh, all the research that was behind it. And the third thing is emphasis on non-manipulative ways to get people to do things. So I started using the video and some training. Um, Stanford had some great resources. I signed up for their marketing materials. And one day, one of their flyers came across my desk, and it said in bold letters, bestseller, and right underneath it, call it influence, persuasion, or even manipulation. And I thought, I cannot believe they actually used that word because he's so clear about non-manipulative ways. In fact, he's introduced in the video and they talk about non-manipulative ways to move people to action. So what I'll say is the moral part of me felt like this needed to be addressed. So I emailed Stanford and I basically said this. I don't know anybody who wants to be manipulated. And I don't know anybody who is looking to become a good manipulator. The word cannot be helping your sales, but it really could be hurting. I never heard from Stanford, but sometime later my phone rang and it was Robert Cialdini's office. And one of his representatives said, I'm calling on behalf of Dr. Cialdini to personally thank you because of your email to Stanford, they're changing the marketing of all of our materials. And I was like, wow, that is so cool. (laughs) And we had this nice conversation. And during this conversation, then she said, you know, if your company ever needs a guest speaker, he travels the world and speaks about this. And as fate would have it, I said, I sit next to the woman who books our speakers. Let me transfer you. And uh, it was the summer of 2004. He visited Columbus, Ohio, several times and addressed insurance agents that represented our company. And that was the beginning of my association with him. Years later, I went through his certification process. And now for a dozen years, I've been a certified trainer of his. So. That I hope that really shows or, or helps listeners understand how seriously I take the difference between persuading and manipulating. Mm. Um, let me say this now about the difference. There are two different words, and they mean different things. Uh, we can persuade people and, and be ethical about it. Manipulation is never acceptable. Um, and the difference, when I talk to people about it, I say to be ethical in your persuasion, you need three things. First is you need to be truthful. You tell the truth and you don't hide the truth. And by that, I mean, um, you know, if I were selling my home and you came and looked at it and I had a rug down in the basement and it just happens to be over a crack in the basement. If I don't tell you about that and then you discover it after you buy my home you're not going to think I'm an ethical person. Because if you said to me, hey, Brian, why didn't you tell me about the crack? And I said, well, Sean, you didn't ask me about it. That's not going to cut it, right? That's not, that's not being an honest, ethical person. So we always tell the truth and we don't hide the truth. And then the next thing is we only use the psychology that's natural to the situation. In other words, we don't invoke like a false sense of scarcity when nothing's really scarce. We don't act like we like somebody when we really don't like them. We don't, we don't um, use psychology that's not available. And the third thing that's a requirement is whatever you're asking of the other person cannot just be for your benefit. It also has to be good for them. And I really think if we're being truthful, using psychology that's natural to the situation, and what we're offering is good for them as well as us, we can feel comfortable about our attempts to influence that person.
1: I love that. I think that that's awesome. I know exactly what you're talking about because, you know, I'm a former financial advisor. And so the fiduciary standard, you know, do under others to their best interest. Don't do anything out of your own self-interest. I mean, that was just beat into our head. And I've recently studied for my um, real estate license and also ethical you know, obviously parameters are very, very key to real estate transactions. So that's the exact example that you gave you, that you gave is not hiding the truth, you know, telling the truth and being open and honest and, and uh, fully disclosing whatever problems are there. That, that's the highest level of, of being ethical to me. You know, that's, that's making sure that you're treating somebody the way that you would want to be treated, viewing the situation through their lens and trying to be you know, uh, concerned and and care for uh, their goals and their their desires. But I like that psychology, natural to the situation, not manipulating the situation. I mean, what it comes to mind is like the whole days of snake oil salesmen. I've got this elixir that you know it, it's oh, going to yeah. be the best thing that you've ever tried. It's going to fix X Y Z. And the reality of it is, is the only thing it, it fixes is the guy's you know lack of money in his pocket. You know, it's just <laughs> um, y, y, you know that it, it's self interested. So it's interesting to draw the the differences between persuasion. And manipulation.
2: And you know, the thing that you learn as you really begin to understand the science of, of influence is that you can talk about your shortcomings, but how you talk about them can make a big difference. If I did have a crack in the basement and I were showing you my home, that would be one of the first things I would point out. I'd, I'd say, you know, you guys don't want to discover some fault in my home, and I want to show you there's a, a small crack in the foundation here. The reason the rug is there is because I use it as a workout area. But I show you that, then you're thinking, Wow, he's an honest guy. Mm -hmm. You can now weigh that in the whole decision-making process. But I talk about those weaknesses early, and then I have an opportunity to segue over to my strengths, and people tend to remember what comes after but or however. So, again, if I say, you know, there's a crack in the basement, but let me tell you about the other things that are positive about the house. So I'm I'm never hiding something, but I understand how to position what I'm offering so that I have the best opportunity to give you something, because I think my house is awesome, and I think you would think it's awesome, too.
1: Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's great. And so understanding that with, with that background, with that training in, in ethical persuasion, right now, you know, we're in the midst of an unforeseen, unimaginable, crazy scenario that in a, a year ago nobody could have saw coming, I, I don't think. You know, some people saw it, but, you know, most general public didn't see it. And um, so what's the biggest question that you're getting right now? I mean, obviously, you're you're a coach, you're a trainer, you're, you're, you're trying to help people. So what's the biggest concern that you feel like people are expressing to you right now in this current environment?
2: Well, I think, well, it's just uncertainty would be the biggest umbrella that everything falls under. There's so many people who just want to continue to wait and see. There's others now who are starting to realize things may not change. So I have to make decisions. Better to make a decision, even if it's wrong, than to sit here and slowly wither away. Uh, because the big challenge for a lot of people is going to be keeping the lights on. Um, you know, revenues will be down because people don't have as much disposable income. Um, you know, especially if you're a restaurant, you can't see as many people as you did before. There's so much uncertainty about this. And I'm a firm believer that in the economy the way it was, virtually anybody could succeed. It seemed like everybody, there was an abundance of money, uh, unemployment was low, everything was good. You didn't have to be very good at what you did to get by. Now you got to be really good. And part of being really good is going to be your ability to influence people. It's going to be, you know, if you're an insurance agent, it's going to be to get that person to stay with you rather than move because they could save a hundred bucks somewhere else. It's going to be um, persuading that person that look, you don't want to get rid of that umbrella policy because bad things still happen, and God forbid something bad happens, and you got a million dollar loss. It's going to be for that restaurant to be able to persuade people that it's safe to come here. Here, the precautions we're taking. It's going to be a good experience for you, and get people to feel comfortable coming back. So, I, I've always believed that persuasion is critical to getting people to say yes, and your professional success. And I think it's more important than ever now because the competition will be more fierce.
1: I agree with that. And I think it's more important than ever now to be honest and real with people about the challenges you're facing. I mean, I think part of, of persuasion or part of, of putting your best foot forward is being candid. I think about, so let me give an example. Let's think of a restaurant, uh, restaurant or a gym or, or whatever, any business that has had a significant challenge right now to be honest with your, with your customers and say, listen, yeah, this has been a challenge, but we're trying to work through it. Here's how we've addressed these issues. Here's how we're pivoting. Here's how we're changing things up. And you can, You can see it. I feel like the people that have the ability to to rise and change and pivot those are going to be the ones that that thrive through this period of time because they're they're going to be able to differentiate themselves but the people that get stuck that try to say and and try to lament I just wish it would go back to the way it was I mean they're they're missing the whole big picture it'll never be like it was this is one of those you know once in in a hundred year type situations that will change so many aspects of life moving forward so to try to say I want it to go back to the way it was they're, they're There isn't that. And so you've got to recognize that that the world has irrevocably changed in many ways. And how are you going to move yourself and your business forward in this new environment?
2: Absolutely. Because, you know, once the car was introduced, we didn't go back to um, horse and carriage. (laughs) I mean, you still have those, right? But it's it's just a pleasure ride. But it's not a mode of transportation for most people. You know, when uh, operators started going away, people... You know, you had to start to learn to use the yellow pages yourself or or how to Google to find a phone number because they just didn't come back. And and we will not go back to the way we were. And even if we inch back some, some of the things that we're learning now are going to stay in place. And I do think a big one, as you mentioned, is going to be the ability to have meetings, uh, have training and do coaching and not have to physically be with somebody because we can still see them with the use of technology. And again, I, I, I go back to, I'm, I'm finding that I'm able to give a better overall training experience for people, not being with them physically for a day, but doing something online.
1: I agree with that. And I think within the industry, so I, I go back to my own industry. As a former financial advisor, I used to have people covet my practice to show me their wares, their new widget, their new example, whether it was an annuity, whether it was an alternative investment, whether it was a mutual fund or or whatever. I mean, I used to have these meetings and people would knock on my door, call us all the time, schedule an in-person meeting. And I used to look at these guys and wonder what their life was like because quite literally, I would be one of hundreds and hundreds of people that they would have to go out and visit. So I wondered about their travel. I wonder about their, you know, just time away from home and what kind of sacrifice that was that was creating for their family and for their kids and for people that they loved. And so I've thought about that actively since all of this has happened. And, and that's one of those industries I don't think is going to ever go back to the same. I think that once people have gotten comfortable with virtual meetings, the whole idea that it has to be face-to-face no longer applies. And actually, the irony of that is it opens up the whole planet. I mean, it opens up the whole country. It opens up the whole world in terms of opportunity for people to connect with, whereas they, they, they might not have felt as comfortable doing that before.
2: Yeah, I think in the in the past people would have been like, "No, we don't want to do that stuff online." And the online tools, just in the last uh, six months or so, continue to get better, more secure—all these positive things. But prior to that, most people, if they had the option of you know doing something in person, would have probably said, "Yeah, let's just do it in person." Um, but now they're realizing, "Hey, if I don't do it in person, I save a tremendous amount of time too." You know, if you're the client, you save a lot of time, not just the salesperson. Uh, there will be a place for the in-person still. I, I do think conferences will come back. I think we're social creatures and people will still like those those special events. They'll like getting together. There would be reasons for salespeople to visit clients, you know, to celebrate milestones and do things like that. But when it comes to talking about the new product and, and other things like that, there's no reason you can't do that online unless it's something they've got to physically hold.
1: I agree with that completely. I, I, I think you're 100% correct. I, I think that you know, gathering for social e- events is going to be different. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Jen and I have talked about this, Jen. I, we were just having this conversation mm-hmm. a couple of days ago. We were watching, you know, in the age of the pandemic, that new TV shows aren't really abundant. So you're going yeah. back through, what do I want to catch up on? What do I want to catch up on? And so we started watching the, the early se- season of the voice. And I remember seeing all of these people in the auditorium or in the, in the room, you know, and I'm like, man, that just, I look at that now and it seems like it was so irresponsible. Look at all those people close to each other. You know, it's just the way that you change <laughs> so your, your perspective. Or I look at a stadium full of, you know, sports fans watching the game. I'm like, oh, what were we thinking? You know, it's just like, you know, look at all those people. Think about how many germs. I mean, it's hard to not see that situation mm-hmm. through a completely different lens right now. And I know it'll change over time, but like right now it, it just mm-hmm. seems like we were so irresponsible in our <laughs> approach to germs and and people and, and the environment at the time.
2: <laughs> yeah, but you know what? This is an interesting aspect, too, of psychology that when we're presented with something, we tend to give that thing that's right in front of us more importance than it probably deserves. And so right now, given the state that we're in, we're thinking, how could we have done that before? That was irresponsible. But if you step back and say, you know what? it was a hundred years ago, the last time there was a pandemic and look at all the things that we did together and people weren't getting sick and look at over the millennia, Mm -hmm. how humans have interacted and haven't been in lockdown and and things like that. I think we can go back to a lot of what we were doing under the right circumstances. It may change, you know, I I live in Columbus, Ohio, maybe Ohio state won't have 108,000 people in the stadium. Maybe they'll scale it back to 75,000 and have a little bit of spacing or something like that. But, I do think that right now we're so focused on the pandemic that we we're a little blinded by the reality that humans have existed for a long time without wearing masks. Yeah, <laughs> Very true.
1: Very true point. <laughs> hey, I'm just curious, like this, this question keeps kicking around in my head and I'm just going to ask it. So I don't, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but it, just talking about trying to, peruse some of the uh, uh entertainment options that are online etc so on netflix there's this uh there's this documentary kind of a hybrid documentary called the social dilemma have you have you caught that mm-hmm. have you seen that
2: i did watch it uh, about 3 weeks ago my my daughter and her boyfriend watched it and they said dad you need to watch this you'll enjoy the psychology aspect of it so i did watch it
1: yeah, you know, that's what came up to me when you were talking about ethical persuasion. Because, you know, if you watch that show, it, it, it talks about the, you know, the challenge of, of – social influence and, and social apps and social media and all that other stuff but it goes far deeper than that and talks about these actual companies and after watching that you know the way in which they've built the algorithms and the information that they gather from us does not seem ethical it seems like unethical persuasion like mm-hmm. I'm going to persuade you to at whatever cost to stay online as long as possible and so I'm just curious what you gleaned out of it what was your take on it given what you do?
2: It, it does make me uncomfortable. I don't think we're going to um, just abandon all the social media that we have. So I think um, social media companies, as they're kind of exposed a little bit more about some of the things they're doing, which they might've thought, well, this is no big deal, um, but it actually is a big deal to people. I mean, none of us would want somebody following us around with a camera recording every single thing. But in a sense, that's kind of what's happening when you're online, they're recording every single thing that you do, and, and it's, not that, it's not that they're probably saying, uh, Jen and Sean are doing this today, but they have enough data built that they know people like you and how you'll respond to something, and so you are being influenced in ways that are outside of your um, awareness. Like if you go to buy a car, you know that the salesperson is gonna to try to sell you that car. And, and if you study some of the stuff that I talk about, then you're aware of how he or she might be trying to persuade you to to buy that car. But the challenge, I think, with the social media is most people have no clue for how they're being impacted and how they're being herded into, you know, people who are like-minded, which isn't always a bad yeah. thing. Except back then, you restrict all of your viewpoints, And I do think that leads a lot to the us versus them. Oh, I'm a Republican. You're a Democrat. I'm a uh, conservative you 're liberal and and all of the um, division that we have because we 're just being herded into groups that were so like minded that we 're tribal now
1: i would I would go one step further and and say it almost feels like not not hurting it it 's the I feel like it's manipulated, like it it was shocking to me and I had not, I mean, I knew it, but I didn't really have it like hit me in the face like it did watching this program. Just like when I do a, a Google search, I'm going to get a completely different answer from my Google search based on what I've searched before and what Google knows of me versus somebody else might get based on what they've done. And so, you know, I think kind of keying those things in together, it's technology that has has gotten to the point where it can manipulate us without us really being able to know that that's occurring. That's what was kind of earth shattering to me, that my YouTube results are going to be different than somebody else. My Google results are going to be different from somebody else. And, you know, and it's all based on, you know, all of this information that somebody's already collected from me. So that in and of itself, that's when I went, oh my gosh, I'm being manipulated. And then you look at what, cause and effect that has and then i think you're right the polarization i'm like never in my life have i seen so much polarization regarding politics and why is Mm -hmm. that or social unrest or any of these things and it really started to click with me maybe that's one of the reasons maybe that's a that's a piece of it right there you know yeah
2: i think it's gone beyond like the the good I don't mind when a company is filtering me ads for things that they think I would probably like based on what my purchases have been, because that will ultimately save me some time. Uh, they won't always be the right things, but but it's better than me having to go spend hours searching online for something. I think there's really good stuff in that. I think, you know, having come out of the insurance industry, there is technology now that can be uh, put in your cars or might be factory installed that would allow the insurance company to monitor your driving habits to really give you a very individualized rate based on where you live and how you drive, when you drive, all of those kind of things. Uh, I don't think that those are necessarily a bad thing because you know if you're a really good driver, why should you pay high rates when <laughs> when you're lumped in with other people who aren't such good drivers? Um, but like almost everything that a human being develops, other people find bad ways to use it. This and is um, true. And, and I think that. I think that um, social media, you know, from what I gleaned in, in watching that show is, is crossing that line in terms of its ability to filter things to get us to think or feel what they want us to think or feel. And it's, it's um, you know, as we go through the political process, it seems to be magnified even more.
1: Well, I think what was uh, what was amazing to me is just this idea that that quote-unquote fake news or inaccurate news or salacious news travels six times faster than normal news. And so if my goal as a technology company is to keep somebody online, then I, then I don't necessarily have an aligned interest in making sure that they're not getting that information. I actually have an interest in making sure that they get more of it or different types of it to stay online, to stay riled, to stay current, to stay active. And yeah. so that that's what was uh, I think also unsettling for me. But going back to what you said before, I just got to be honest, Brian. I don't want any insurance company having any knowledge of how I drive. I'm just going to tell you that right now because I <laughs> I tend to have a lead foot. So this whole idea that hey, you can save fifteen yeah. percent if we put this in your car. I'm like, nope, nope, not for me. I'm not I'm not going to have that in my car. That's for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. Jim you know, would attest the to da- that, da- right?
2: The danger will be, Sean. Yeah. The the, the and, and I can agree because I got a new car and it rides so smooth and all of a sudden I'm like darn I'm going 80 and it doesn't feel like it, it feels like I'm going 60 <laughs> exactly but but what will happen what will happen here is the people who really know that they don't speed or do things like that are going to take advantage of that and they're going to save a bunch of money and what that'll do is it'll lead the drivers who are uh, more susceptible to potentially accidents and things will be grouped and their rates will go up and they'll go up significantly so. It, it just mark my words, give it time, there is going to become that, that, that divide there where the good drivers are opting because they know they can get that lower rate, and that leads to people that the insurance companies say aren't as good a driver and and you will see your rates go up because it'll be no longer supplemented by those other drivers.
1: Yeah, I can see that. So so, so in other in other words the the wave is inedible. Inedible. I can't even sometimes I get tongue tied myself. Inevitable. <laughs> so at some point I'm going to yeah, be grouped into I, a class of non-opting in and so the theory is I'm a bad driver or I'm a risky driver, which is probably a little bit true. Yeah. At least if you talk to Jen, Jen Jen doesn't think I'm the greatest driver, right Jen? <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, well okay so relative to the the current situation and uh in what you do talking about ethical persuasion any other nuggets that you could share with our audience about in this current environment how to be good at at persuading people in an ethical way you gave us a one two three about the difference between ethical versus manipulation but you know i'm sure you've got a few more nuggets of goodness uh for our listeners
2: well but i one thing that I really try to emphasize um, with people is if you lay hold of this principle that we call liking, liking simply says this, that it's easier for people to say yes to us if they know us and like us. Right. I mean, we all get that. I mean, we're human beings. We, we all understand that it's easier for us to say yes to people that we look at and think are friends. So it's incumbent that if you want to be persuasive with people that you make connections and form relationships, what you don't want to do is try so hard to get people to like you. So, you know, if I wanted to positively influence the two of you, I wouldn't spend a lot of time trying to get you to like me. I would spend time trying to come to like you. And the very same things that would make you like me would make me like you. And so prior to getting on air here, we were talking about so many things that we have in common with, with running and fitness and having been in the insurance industry and things like that those naturally make me like you more because I see you as similar to myself. And so I always emphasize with people, when you go into situations, don't don't try to get people to like you, but have a mindset that says, how can I come to like this person? And then you start looking for the things you have in common. You look for things you can genuinely compliment. You look for ways you can work together uh, where you have success and that makes you think more highly of them. And the reason this is so important is because If you really sense that, hey, Brian likes me, well, we all deep down believe that friends do right by friends. And you become much more open to what I might ask. And the good news is because I do come to like you, I do want your best. And that pretty much removes manipulation from the equation because I would never manipulate my friends. I know you wouldn't either. So by me coming to like you, I take manipulation out of the equation because I like you, I want the best for you and everything I'm putting forth, I really believe is the best for you and that's how you receive it. And if more people would do that, I think they would have much better relationships and it would be a lot, it would build a lot more trust in business.
1: I agree with that completely. I I, I like how you frame that. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a good way to look at the situation. You know, I think uh, relative to the pandemic, I think things have upended upended most people's lives. And and so one of the things that Jen and I have done is is just try to stay consistent with our physicality. I think if you're if you feel like you're in good shape, if you feel like you're you're healthy and fit, I think that that does wonders for your overall view of the world. So Jen and I are on our um, closing in on, I think, 1700 days, something like that. Do you know?
0: No, I don't know, but it's. I think it's close to sixteen hundred.
1: Sixteen hundred. All right. Yeah. So I'm I'm getting confused. Anyway, the idea behind it is that we've done a run, walk, or jog one mile a day, um, every day mm-hmm. for almost sixteen hundred uh, days. So over four and a half years, which is which is something I never would have thought that we would have did. But you know, the pandemic also kind of made me go to my because I have four boys. I I just wanted to lead by example and I wanted to show him show them how I was going to handle the situation. And so I came into, um, in April, I, I resigned myself to say, this is not going to be the year of the pandemic for me. It's going to be the year that I get in the best shape of my life. And so since April, I'm down uh, 22 pounds, and that's been a function of, of running and uh, cycling. So I know you're into physicality. I know you're into fitness. You used to be a bodybuilder. I know you've run marathons. And so I think that that's a, that's it's, I think when you do that, if you can focus on some part of your life and have successes and wins in that part of your life, it helps you to adjust to the challenges in other parts of your life. Would you agree?
2: Oh, absolutely. Because so much of what I do in business, I learned through athletics. I, I was very fortunate that early on when I was uh, in high school and, and got um, hooked up with uh, a YMCA program that was run by powerlifters. I really started to learn how to lift weights the right way. I learned what it meant to plan to get ready for a powerlifting meet lead or a bench press contest and, and, you know, set a goal and work back and, and devise a plan for, okay, how am I going to work out every, every week leading up to this event? What are the weights I'm going to be lifting? And that ability to set that goal and then step back and, and create the plan has been hugely helpful in, in business. And so I, I see a tremendous amount. In fact, you know, it's almost cliche, but our high school football coach used to say things like, you're going to learn a lot about life when you play this game. And we thought he was full of BS running in the hot <laughs> August sun. But he was right. We did. And uh, more and more, I, I look at that. I, I have learned, uh, for example, uh, when it came to running too, that, you know, you don't get ready for a marathon by going out and just running a whole bunch one day or for a week. It's a long process. Mm-hmm. And, and I really think in business, by taking the long view and saying, what are the right things I need to do on a daily basis and then sticking to that. I always tell people, no one workout, no one meal will make or break your fitness. It's the consistency of your workouts, the consistency of your meals that makes or breaks your fitness. And I do think in business, it's the same thing. Keep plugging away, making your calls, sending your emails, doing your connections, doing all the things that you need to do and then things start popping. And it starts, everything starts happening. But you know, making a bunch of calls one day and you don't get a sale is almost like saying, well, I went and worked out. Why aren't I benching 400 pounds now?
1: I think I think Jen and I both can uh, relate to that. Jen, you Jen's got over 50,000 followers on Instagram. She's got a great running page, a great physicality page. And I think one of the challenges for her has been people that reach out that want to be like her but yet don't understand how much discipline and preparation and how long of a journey that is. Yeah. Like like you get frustrated sometimes when people reach out to you, right?
0: Yeah, because it's just not overnight. Like I can't give you my secrets. You have to want it. You have to do it and it's just more than just a picture or a meal I post. It's it's lifelong.
1: Yeah, and and, and it and it takes yeah. that desire, the desire to want something better, mm-hmm. more than the immediacy of the gratification right. or the or the dopamine hit of having the donut or having the cookie or having whatever. You know, we all know when it comes to fitness, yeah. it's more about what goes into your mouth than what right. you're doing at the gym.
0: That's very true.
1: Yeah,
0: and it's okay to have cake. One of the things that I. <laughs> I like, still, so, oh, um, I like ice cream, too. Oh, I like ice cream, too. Something, something that, that
2: I really came to understand was if you love what you're doing, if you love the journey, then the goal, and the goal might be a marathon, it might have been a powerlifting meet, it might have been when my daughter and I did uh, taekwondo, it might have been testing for a black belt. But what I started to realize when I look back at those experiences, I loved getting up every morning early before everybody was up and going out and running. I felt like I was doing something hardly anybody else would do. I loved going to the gym with my partners and training and getting ready for a contest and the anticipation. And I realized the goal was just an excuse to do the thing I loved with more intensity and effort. Mm -hmm. And, And when you can get to that point where you can say, you know what, I love what I do. I just need that goal to make me do that thing with more intensity and effort that's a wonderful thing because then you're, you know, your days, you, every day you can say, I love what I do and I'm excited to go do it. Mm-hmm. For me, that's what goals represent. It was never about, you know, the, the goal itself. Cause once you've done it, even a marathon, anything like that and you're done and you're like, okay, now what? Yep. And if <laughs> exactly. you don't love running, you're not going to want to go back and train again. If you don't love, Dieting and lifting, you're not going to want to go back and try to do another bodybuilding contest or a powerlifting meet. So you just have to learn to love the process and let the goals give you the the boost that you need to do it with more intensity than you might.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's been the one thing that's been a, a little bit crazy for for me, and I, I think you touched on it a bit. And that is like what happens when you reach the goal. You know, like for me, for for literally. 25 years, probably, I've had a goal of, you know, being at a goal weight, like 175, I'm 5'9", I felt like, you know, 170, 175 would be the ideal weight for me. Well, you you know, I weighed in this morning, I'm at 179. So I'm almost, I'm almost there. And Jen's like, what are you going to do when you get there? And I'm like, whoa, I've never even thought, like for 20 years, I've, I've gone, I want to lose weight. I want to be in good shape. You know, (laughs) like what happens when you get there? Like what, what, what's the motivation (laughs) at that point? Like where, you know, like where, where do I go? Like I've never had to deal with that before. And it's, and I think that's what you're keying in on. You know, do you love it? Is it part of your lifestyle now? Is it, you know, is it how you, going to move forward with it you know in your life or, or are you you know
2: yeah and then it's just a matter of finding different goals my, my wife is a is a really really good golfer and what's interesting about golf is because y- you never attain perfection but you can always pursue it and that's something that makes it fun <laughs> for her all the time even if she shoots the same score she might say yeah but i wasn't striking the ball as well or i didn't put as well as i did there's always something to strive a little bit further for and if, as long as you don't become obsessive about it, then it can become a great thing because you realize I'm going to go out and, and uh, try to do a little bit better than I did before. And for me, that was always my challenge. Like when I was lifting and running, I knew I wasn't going to be an elite marathoner, but I set certain goals and said, how good can I become? Mm-hmm. And and that was always my challenge. And and Jen, you, you'll appreciate this, that the first time I ran a 10K, I was exhausted at the end. And I think I'd run seven and a half minute miles. I was fried. If somebody would have said, hey, Brian, you know what? Keep training the right way and you'll run that pace for 20 more miles. I would have thought, no way in the world. It just can't happen. Yeah. And that's what I ended up doing. Um, uh-huh. and, and so that was really cool. Like, How far could I push my body, given the limits of you know my family, my career, and all that stuff, and the time that I had? And I felt like I pushed it as far as I could at my age. And then I decided I wanted to pursue some other things and got involved with my daughter in Taekwondo. But um, that should be our driver because there's certain things. I, again, I wasn't going to be elite when it came to something like that. But I really felt like I became about as good as I possibly could.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I think there's something about challenge Something about challenging yourself. I think your wife and I would get along really well because I'm a I'm a subscriber ever since in my early twenties to this concept called Kaizen. And I learned about it watching a reading about Tiger Woods and his mom. And Kaizen is is a Japanese word represented by two kanji symbols and it and it means continuous ongoing improvement in all aspects of your life, kind of never being settled. I can I can pursue perfection, I'll never attain it. But I think it's sometimes annoying yeah. to Jen that I that I feel that way <laughs> because she's like, "All right, why are you never satisfied? Why are you never you know settled? Are you you just you just got to keep going, going, going?" But it is it is that it's it's about uh, learning, constantly growing, and I think that this year is a great example of a year where you just got to roll with the punches and try to grow in, in positive ways in whatever ways where you're not met with extreme adversity. That's why I hey, hate Jen and I flip houses for, for a living. And so this has been a really challenging year the pandemic for that. So I'm going to pivot. I'm going to create some wins on the physicality side. You know, maybe I've, I i can not move where I want to go on the business side as much as I wanted to, but I'm going to, I'm going to do so in some other area of my life.
2: Yeah. I, uh... I like to say um, when it comes to things like that, content but not complacent. Mm -hmm. When I get done, for example, doing a presentation and I spend a lot of time practicing and I've done things like improv to improve my skills, Mm -hmm. my wife and I did some acting class, all these little things to keep getting better. But every time I do a presentation, I really feel like, wow, that might be the best presentation that I've ever given. Mm -hmm. And then I know that I can still get better. And so I look for ways to, to get better. So I allow myself to really feel good about it. I don't just dismiss it and go, oh gosh, that was, that stunk. that could have been so much better. Like some people have a false sense of humility. If I did well, I know I did well and I will relish it for a while, but then I'll look back and say, but what could I do a little better? How could I make a story more effective? What could I do to reach the audience in a little bit better? And that allows me to look back and say, gosh, five years ago when I did that presentation and I thought I killed it. And at the moment I did, but but that's a fraction of who I am now. That for me is fun. That's exciting. and, And that is motivating to know that there's always a way to get a little better. And when it's related to the business, the getting better means I'm helping people.
1: Yeah. I love that. Well, speaking of helping people, as we close out the show here, you know, I guess I want you to imagine a, a a guy that owned a restaurant that's got, you know, maybe had three restaurants before the pandemic and now he's looking at possibly losing all three or a gym owner that, you know, was at the top of his game and now looks like his whole world may be crumbling down. And And what advice and or perspective encouragement could you offer? What hope might you be able to give somebody that's in that situation right now?
2: Well, I, I- first thing I would say is um, it's okay to kind of grieve a little and feel bad, but then you got to step back and say, but I'm not going to sit here and die in it. Um, they, there will be things that people do with restaurants. There will be things that people do with gyms. There will be pe- there are things people are doing right now with training that will look back and go like, holy cow, that's such a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? So you've got to try to become that person. You've got to figure out how can I pivot and change things? Some restaurants, you know, right away started having their wait staff uh, do home delivery. Maybe some of them can become so good at home delivery that they never have to open the restaurant again, but all they do is is serve people via takeout because there's going to be a lot of people who just never want to go back to to restaurants. Gym owners, somebody, somebody, they figure out a way to, almost have a conveyor belt kind of thing where you get on and you do your exercises and you keep moving along. So you don't have to interact with somebody. I mean, I know that's really weird and far out, but somebody will think of some things that we're going to look back and go, man, I wish I was the person who thought of that. Mm -hmm. So everybody's got to challenge themselves to say, if things don't go back to a semi-normal state, what can I do to try to survive? And it's okay to step out and try some things. And if they don't work, you step back and assess why they didn't and what do I need to do? How do I need to change uh, going forward? But after that period of, of grieving, you can't just stay where you are. You've got to get up and then try to do something different if you want your business to succeed.
1: Yeah, I think uh, stated stated a little differently, it's, it's what you're basically saying is I think that the people that are going to make it through this, that are going to... Rise. The people that are going to uh, evolve are going to be the people that focus on not the problem but the solution, instead of lamenting the problem and fixating on the problem. Yeah. What can I do? What What are the options? How can I yeah. solve the problem? What's the solution to the problem? And I think that those pivots, those right. transitions, those taking a left instead of a right, um, I think that those are yeah. really going to be. It's going to be interesting. It's yeah. It's going to be awesome to see. It's going to be interesting to see how yeah. many industries change and what the changes are within those industries and what changes actually stick and which ones don't. But yep. um, it, it is a once in a lifetime. I told my kids, my four boys, I said, listen, you have an opportunity right now to live through something that, you know your kids and grandkids will be taught about in school 30 50 70 years from now maybe you should be journaling maybe mm-hmm. you should re- be writing this stuff down because you're going to want to remember what this was like this is this is a once in a lifetime uh event and experience and so soak it all in both the good and the bad the challenges and the and the uh you know rising to the occasion type of of moments but um uh, i think that's what you're saying yeah
2: Yeah. Can I, can I give you a quick example? Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Here I am saying something to to people and they might be thinking, yeah, well, what are you doing? Um, As as an example, I live in Columbus. I was supposed to do a day long training session with about 40 or 50 people at an insurance company in May. And thankfully when the pandemic hit, they didn't cancel it, but they said, let's do this over zoom and we don't want to have people in front of their computer for eight hours. So we'd like to do a couple hours in the, in the spring four hours, we'll break the group in two and do two sessions, four hours in the summer. And then we'll break the group into two and do two, two hour sessions in in the fall. And my first thought was, darn it. Now I got to be in front of my computer on five different days instead of one day with them. And maybe I should have charged more. My my mind started going down a negative path. And then I stopped and I said, well, how could we make this an even better experience. So I reached out and I said, would you give me the names and email addresses of all 50 people who are going to be in the training? Because I want to reach out and connect with them all on LinkedIn. And I'd like to have them all listen to a podcast before we do our first session so they can hear me and get familiar with the concepts. And then let's get them a copy of my book and I'll autograph all of them. So we did all of that before the first session. So we had all this positive momentum. I had people reaching out and thanking me for the book and connecting on LinkedIn and and stuff. So we go into the first two hours super positive. And then we said between the May and July session, have them read the book, have them listen to another podcast. So again, they're thinking about the concepts that they've learned. And then we dive in deep into the meat of everything in July. And then from July until September, Every single week, they got an email, 7.30 on Monday morning. Here's the one thing that you need to focus on this week. Then we had our final two-hour session. Now they're getting a series of four more emails. Then I realized, now they're thinking about me and my teaching for six months. They're getting to implement it slowly over a period of time. Their managers can, can coach and manage to it. It's so much better for them, and it's so much better for me. Because when they have this really positive experience, These 50 people will eventually ascend to management positions, go to different companies, and they're going to be the people who say, hire that guy, Brian. It was an awesome experience when I was with this other company. So, you know, again, I I've had that negative. I wallowed a little bit. I I doubted if I maybe set the right pricing standard, but now I realize this is going to pay dividends for a long, long time to come.
1: You know what that is, Brian? That's, uh, that's the lyric from a song that I very much love, Zach Williams and Dolly Parton. That is the blessing in the broken pieces. You found a way to mm-hmm. take what was the challenge and turn it into the opportunity. And I think that's a great example of a pivot. I think it's a great way of reframing the situation and seeing and instead of the challenge, the problem, seeing the solution to the problem and looking for you know, the excellent outcome out of it. What if this was actually for your benefit? What if it actually makes things better? What if it actually engages people more significantly and more fervently than anything else that you had done? And it was all created because you chose to look at the at the solution to the problem and not the problem itself.
2: Right. And I don't own a gym. I don't own a, a restaurant. So I don't know all the challenges and I don't know all the opportunities, but I hope anybody listening to this would say, Hey, if that guy could find the opportunity in the middle of the challenges, I can, I need to just step back and reassess my business. And I need to start creatively thinking about how we could do things differently. I need to, Try different things and not be afraid of failing because not doing anything is probably certain failure. So step out and try something a little bit different. Learn from it. Keep tweaking it and keep moving ahead.
1: Well said. Thank you so much, Brian. Awesome conversation. Really great discussion. Great great nuggets of, of, um, I think, positive influence there. And you're certainly doing what you set out to do, which is you persuaded me into being (laughs) an absolute optimist about the future. I'll tell you that much right now.
2: Well, thank you. I really, I really appreciate that. that. I don't always consider that my forte, but you know, if if sharing in the way that I did creates that hope, then that that is awesome.
1: <laughs> it definitely did it. That. Thank you so much.
2: You're welcome.
0: So, what did you think about that?
1: I thought that was a really, really interesting discussion. Um, I felt like. Really, the art of persuasion, the Mm -hmm. way that he talked about persuasion versus manipulation. I just really felt like Brian really spoke to that well. I loved his point about the three differences between persuasion and manipulation. Number one, you got to be truthful, telling the whole truth, not omitting anything. The um, psychology natural to the situation. So not, not creating an over urgency or creating some sort of an inauthentic, you know, reason for somebody to make a move or Mm -hmm. make a change or to go the direction you want them to go into. And then, um, whatever you're asking has to be good for both people. Basically, you know, it's not something that's just a win for you and a loss for somebody else or a win for you and a neutral for somebody Mm -hmm. else. Both people have to come out of it having a positive experience and both people winning. I thought that was an excellent point, but I, I love talking to him about, uh, the social dilemma that show. (laughs) I love talking to him about, uh, you know, just pivoting. And I thought his example of, you know, how he reframed his his business and he thought of that one example where he was going to have this one day speaking engagement mm-hmm. and it turned into something over six months, but he found a way to deepen the the engagement, deepen the relationship with the people that involved. He took the negative and turned it into a positive yeah. because he focused on not the problem, but he focused on the solution. Exactly. You know, and I think that's a message that resonates well with people uh, moving forward. What would you think?
0: I thought it was great. Like, same points as what you just said. Um, it was very interesting to listen to. So
1: You were a professional listener with a voice. You didn't ask nearly as many questions as we thought you might.
0: I, I thought know. you were going to conduct the interview. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See?
1: Did you forget? I forgot. You forgot. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think, you know, sometimes, um, you know, these types of discussions, they can be challenging. You know, if you're not, acutely in that particular business mm-hmm. i think brian and i had some uh commonality because yeah. of my insurance background oh, yeah. wholesaling all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff but uh no worries but if some people want to hear more of our uh podcast and connect with us directly how do they do so jen
0: they can listen to us on itunes and iHeart radio in soundcloud and spotify and alexa
1: yes all those
0: and i google play
1: And I Google Play? Is there (laughs) such a thing as I Google Play? I don't know, is there? I don't know, but I think it's called Google Play.
0: Oh. Oh, (laughs) I Google Play.
1: So um, if people want to direct message us or connect with us on our socials, how would they do so?
0: You can reach out to us on the Hope Radio podcast on Facebook and Instagram.
1: Give us a like. Give us a follow. Leave us a review on iTunes, too. We're looking for reviews. Yes. You can give us a star rating, five stars, but an actual endorsement, um, a testimonial, a review. That's what we're looking for.
0: We would love that.
1: We would love it. We would be your fans for life.
0: We already are your fans for life.
1: <laughs> yes, we are. All right, Jen. I think we should. I, I had fun today. I think we should do another podcast. I've got a great interview lined up. Something special for you tomorrow. So Ooh. look forward to that. What do you say?
0: I'll be here. Shall
1: we do it again? Let's
0: do it.